You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 127. Psalm 127, as we begin today this mini-series on parenting that will take us to the beginning of Advent at the end of November. Our typical practice here at Sovereign Grace is if you've been part of our church for any length of time, you'll know that we typically go through entire books of the Bible. But once in a while, we will do a shorter series that focuses on specific topics that seem to have timely relevance for our church at that time. I still plan to preach these sermons on parenting expositionally, which means that we're going to be concerned with the original intent of the author and understanding what the Bible says for itself. And we're going to let the text direct the content of the sermons, but the application will be more focused on this specific topic of parenting. I'm going to try to make this series as practical as possible But if you've ever studied the Bible uh, on this topic of parenting, you'll know that it's not always as practical as we might like. It rarely drops into the specifics. What time do I put my kids to bed? How much screen time should they have every day? When are they ready to get a smartphone? Should they go to public school or Christian school or homeschool? The Bible doesn't give us definitive answers to these questions. But it does give us a vision of parenting That should inform how we answer those questions. And so this series is going to be both practical and conceptual. We need to see the big picture of parenting before we drop into the day-to-day of parenting. We need to know where we are going before we decide how we're going to get there. Now, there are several reasons why I have chosen in collaboration with the elders in our church to do this series at this time. The first reason is that we have a number of young families who are either expecting their first or anticipating having children in the near future or have just recently welcomed their first children. We want to help them to lay a biblical foundation for how to approach parenting. Another reason is that for those who are currently parents, COVID-19 has brought about challenges to parenting that we have not faced before. This has been a hard season, whether you have children who are young or children who are in university. For many of us, our kids have spent more time at home during COVID than they ever have before, and many of us are exhausted. We need a biblical refresher to remind us of what God has called us to do in our role as parents. And another reason why this series seems important to us is that Increasingly, we find that the world has a very different vision of parenting than the Bible. And if we're not careful, the world's vision of parenting can end up having more of an influence on how we function as fathers and mothers than Scripture does. Right now, the world, generally speaking, sees parenting as being all about the happiness of our children. That is the target that we're aiming for. We are aiming for their happiness. We do what pleases them. And so if we put them in piano lessons, they don't want to do it anymore, we take them out. If they really, really like competitive sports and it takes them out of town on Sunday so they can't go to church, we say, well, it makes them happy. 
Well, this is what we could call a child-centric view of parenting. What the child desires, prefers, and wants becomes the center of our parenting universe. All of our decisions revolve around that orbit of what our child wants. But the Bible says it's not about them. In fact, it says it's not even about us. The alternative to child-centric parenting is not parent-centric parenting. It's not about us making them do what we want because we can be just as worldly as they can be. Instead, the Bible says that we must adopt a God-centric view of parenting where everything that we do is all about him, his will, his plans, his glory. And for those who aren't parents, I know that some of you are going to enjoy this series. You're, you're leaning in and you are ready to learn and listen and to take home some principles that hopefully one day you'll have a chance to apply in your own families. Others may find this series boring and irrelevant. Say, this isn't my season of life. Uh, I'm just waiting for the next series to begin so that I can truly pay attention. And others are going to find this series extremely difficult because you want to be a parent, but you wonder whether God will ever open that door. I want to encourage you to listen to this series in a slightly different way. Don't just ask yourself, as is typical of us, well, how does this apply to me? Or what does this say about what I have or what I don't have? Instead, ask yourself what these truths about parenting and about the family says about God, about the character and the nature of God, who he is and what he has done. If, if you do, then I guarantee you that this series will lead you to worship it will give you a heart of reverence and awe at what God has done in creating the family. You can enjoy a majestic mountain scene, even if you're not walking on it. You can admire beautiful architecture, even if that house does not belong to you. And you can rejoice in what God has done in making the family what it is, even if you don't have your own children. Uh, the other thing I want to say to you is that if you listen carefully, you may find yourself learning about how to be a father or a mother in the midst of your spiritual family, the church. You can be a spiritual father or mother at a time when so many people come out of dysfunctional, broken families, and they don't know what it is like, what it means to be loved by someone with a parental pure love. You can be a spiritual father or mother who plays a crucial role in raising up the next generation of believers. And so we begin this series on parenting in Psalm 127. And this psalm is going to, in many ways, set the foundation for all that we're going to study throughout this series. The heading of this psalm says it's a song of ascents of Solomon. Most of the time we glaze over that, we get right into what we think is the real substance, but often the heading can frame how we read the psalm. And that is the, the case here. It is important for us to note that this is a psalm of Solomon because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Solomon's father, King David, announced that he wanted to make a house for the Lord. He had finished building the city of Jerusalem. 
He had finished building his kingly palace, and he wanted to build a temple for the Lord, a house where the ark of the Lord would be stored. In response, the Lord said that he would make David a house, a house, a dynasty that would last forever. Listen to what the Lord says to him. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So what happens here, what we see here is that God promises to make David a house, a house that would begin with his son Solomon and extend throughout the generations and culminate in Jesus Christ, the son of David who would reign on David's throne forever. This is the house that Solomon is talking about in verse one. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. There were so many times, if you read the history of David's family, where that house could have crumbled as king after king disobeyed God and worshipped idols instead of the one true living God. But God was at work building David's house and preserving David's house until the coming of the Messiah in the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. And so this psalm is ultimately about David's house, but at the same time, it is about my house, and it is about your house. As we see verses three to five, verses that were quoted by Pastor Tim as he was praying the pastoral prayer, these verses speak not just of children of the king, but children in general, to make it clear that this psalm applies to every family that desires to see their house extend throughout the generations, a house full of faithful believers that will bring glory to God. And for that to happen, we need God to act. We need God to build the house. And so I'm calling this series Building a House for the Lord because that is what parenting is all about. What we do as parents isn't about us. It's not about us living vicariously through the lives of our children. It's not about us satisfying the desires of our children. It is about the Lord. And as we parent, we want to have an eye to the generations that will come after us and after our children have come and gone. And we pray that those generations, that house, would be faithful to God as God builds it alongside us. The title of this sermon is The First Principles of Parenting. The first principles of parenting will divide our text into three points. First, vain parenting. Second, anxious parenting. And third, blessed parenting. Verses one to two use three pictures that describe what parenting is all about. Building, protecting, and toiling. It says parenting is like building a house. Build, you need to plan, you need some wisdom, you need some skill, you need some help. Parenting is like building. Parenting is also like watching over a city. It is protective. You're looking out for dangers and you are exercising vigilance and alertness. Parenting is also toiling. You, you, you got to do hard work. 
It's toiling for your bread day by day, hard work applied to just to, to feed yourself and your family. But the main point of verses one to two is that unless the Lord works, all of that is in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The word vain means empty or meaningless. It's, it ends up accomplishing nothing. And it's used three times in these verses to press home the point that no matter how much you build, no matter how much you watch, no matter how much you toil, it's all in vain unless the Lord is building beside you. And that is lesson number one when it comes to parenting. Listen, we are called to do something that is impossible for us to accomplish in our own strength. We are called to do something that is impossible for us to accomplish by ourselves. Sure, we can raise up children who are responsible, respectable, but we cannot raise up children who fear the Lord, who believe the gospel, and who will desire to pass on the heritage of their father and mother of faith to the next generation. If we are to see a house built for the Lord, we need the Lord to build it with us because only he can bring the spiritually dead to life. Only he can build a true house that will last. And that doesn't mean that we sit back and do nothing. Verse one doesn't say the Lord will build the house and therefore we can just relax. It's saying unless the Lord builds the house, all your labors are in vain. But if the Lord builds with you, then your labors will not be in vain. Your labors will accomplish building a house that is beautiful and strong and that will last throughout the generations. In his commentary on the Psalms, Alan Ross helpfully summarizes what it means for the Lord to build the house through us. He says, we may say that the Lord builds the house if, one, the people build it by faith in the Lord's provisions for it, two, in accordance with his will, three, in a way that is pleasing to him, honest and fair, four, dedicate it to his use and purpose, and five, give glory to him for the accomplishment. It's so helpful for us to remember because this is not encouraging passivity. This is encouraging intentionality. It is encouraging parenting using the paradigm that God has set out in Scripture. That's what it means for the Lord to build the house alongside us. Parenting will not work if we rely on our own strength. It will not work if we rely on our own wisdom. It will only work if we submit to God's will and God's ways for what parenting is meant to be. Now, this should humble us because we like to be self-sufficient. We, we trust in our own opinions and we, we, we think we see what works and we apply it to our own families. We expect that it's going to work. And so this psalm humbles us and says, what you think will work, it will not work. This should also comfort us. It should comfort us because if the burden of change lay on us, then how are we going to respond when our children don't change? How, how are we going to respond when one of your kids selfishly takes a toy from her sibling? So you sit down and you're like, okay, I'm going to be a good parent here. I'm going to have a nice gospel-centered conversation and exhort my daughter to be loving and generous just like Jesus loved us and was generous with us. And, and she listens, she nods her head, you pat her on the head, you go wash the dishes, and five minutes later she's doing the same thing. How do you respond to that? Well, if the burden of change 
rests on you, then parenting would be an utter disappointment again and again and again. And your response to that would be frustration and anger, disappointment with yourself, frustration with your child for failing to respond the way that you want. But this psalm reminds us the burden is not on us. Meaningful, lasting change is impossible for us to accomplish. That burden lies on God and God alone. In his book on parenting, Paul Tripp helpfully writes this, good parenting is about becoming okay with the fact that you are powerless to change your child. In fact, good parenting is about celebrating the fact that God has never and will never put the burden of change on you. Our job is simple. It's not to create change, but to be humble and willing instruments of change in the hands of the one and only author of change. We need God to build the house. And we need God to watch over the city. We we know as parents, if you have children, you know of the protective instinct that drives our day-to-day watching over our children. We we, want to watch over who they're spending time with, who are their closest friends. We want to watch over their entertainment habits. What are they being influenced by in popular culture? We want to watch who they're listening to. What are the podcasts that they're subscribing to? Who are they following on social media? We want to watch out for them because we know that it's a dangerous world. But this psalm says it is all in vain without the Lord. And do you know why? It is because the greatest threat to our children does not lie out there. It lies in here. It is within the heart of your child. As John Owen put it, you can have the strongest walls and the most vigilant sentries patrolling the city gates. If there is a traitor in the city, you are going to lose the battle. And we all have a traitor in our hearts called sin. And it is ready to side with temptation and give everything up to it. And that is why we need the Lord to watch over the city with us because only he can see the enemy in the heart, and only he has the power to do something about it. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And one of the characteristics of parenting in your own strength rather than the Lord's strength is the constant presence of anxiety. This leads to our second point, anxious parenting. I need to qualify this by saying that that feeling anxiety is not always sinful. It isn't wrong for you to be anxious when your child is supposed to be home at 3.30 and it's 6 o'clock. It's not sinful for you to feel anxiety when your son is spending too much time with the wrong crowd. It's not sinful to feel anxiety when your daughter is not opening up to you anymore. Being anxious for our children is part of parenting. It just comes with the territory. It is, in fact, an expression of our love for them. If in certain circumstances we did not feel anxious, it would, it would reveal an indifference to the well-being of our children. Anxiety is not always sinful. That's why one of the reasons why Paul admitted he faced daily pressure was because of his anxiety for all the churches. Paul felt anxiety for the churches that he planted. And when he said that, he wasn't confessing his sins. 
He was using his anxiety as an example to prove his love for Christ and for the church. Anxiety can be a sign of love when we're anxious for the well-being of someone else. But the question then is, what do we do with that anxiety? Do we just stay in a perpetual state of being worried? Or is there something else that we can do? Well, verse 2 describes a person who responds to their anxiety by putting in more work, more hours, and more effort. This person tries to artificially lengthen each day. He burns the candle at both ends by rising early and going late to bed because he believes that it's all up to him. If he just puts in more work, more effort, more hours, then everything that he's anxious about will resolve itself in a way that that satisfies him. But if you have ever felt anxiety before, you know that that never works because anxious people always find something else to be anxious about. That's why verse 2 describes him as eating the bread of anxious toil. Anxiety is his daily experience. Even his food is flavored with fear. He's constantly questioning what's going to happen next. Is he going to lose his job? Are his investments going to be lost in the stock market? Is this presentation at work going to go well? Is there going to be enough rain for the crops? The anxious person is constantly trying to gaze into the future. And what they see is always what they fear. The anxious person is a prophet of doom and gloom. Or as Ed Welch helpfully puts it, he says, worriers are visionaries minus the optimism. The same can be true of our parenting. As a parent, you can be a visionary minus the optimism. All you forecast is what you fear. We worry about whether our kids will get good jobs unless their grades turn around. We're anxious about whether our kids will be responsible when all they want to do is play video games all day. We stay awake at night because we fear that unless our daughter starts opening up to us again, then we will relationally drift apart. Verse 2 says all these worries and anxieties are suffered in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Why? For he gives to his beloved sleep, it says. He gives to his beloved sleep. In our moments of anxiety, God calls us to turn to him, to know his love, and to receive his rest. He wants us to admit that though we do not know the future, God knows the future. And everything that will happen in the future will happen according to his plan and his timing and his will, not ours. And Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount when he addressed anxiety. He said, do not be anxious. Why? Because none of us can add a single hour to our lives by being anxious. And none of us can add a single hour to our children's lives by being anxious. Anxiety is meaningless, pointless, and empty. Anxiety is vain. So instead of being anxious about all the bad things that might happen, we need to turn to the Father and trust him for all that will happen. Trust the one who feeds the birds and clothes the lilies of the field and who knows all that we need even before we ask. Vain parenting Anxious parenting is not the pattern for God's people. 
This last point reveals God's plan for us. Blessed parenting, our final point. Blessed parenting, the blessing of parenting is mentioned in verse five, which says, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, that is, with children. When the Bible speaks of being blessed, it's really just speaking about a happiness that comes from God. You could say it is heavenly happiness, happiness for the right reasons, happiness that finds its source in God, in who he is and in his gracious provision. And verse 5 says that the man who has lots of children has this heavenly happiness and experiences that happiness in his life. But we know that that's not always the case. There are many large families that are also unhappy families. So what is it that making a, uh, that having a big family, what is it about having a big family that makes it a blessed life? It begins with a simple but profound truth in verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. We, we live in a time when children are not seen as a reward. Children can often be seen as a punishment or as an inconvenience. Children are seen as getting in the way of what we really want to do with our lives rather than as reminders of what God wants us to do with our lives. But God wants us to receive our children as a heritage, as an inheritance from his kind and generous hand. When he gives us children, he is taking what belongs to him and entrusting them to us so that we would steward them happily on his behalf. You've probably heard people complain about how expensive children are. Perhaps you've said something like that yourself in the past. It's easy to treat family planning as merely a matter of economic consideration. I'm not saying that the cost of children is irrelevant, but the temptation behind that kind of thinking is that we fail to recognize what what children truly are. Children are not just another line to add to your budgeted expenses. Children are a gift from God the fruit of the womb, a reward, and therefore they are extremely valuable. Can you imagine? In your will, giving your children a beautiful home, and you're excited about their response. They're going to be happy, especially with the hot real estate market. They're going to be so blessed, and yet their response is that they complain and grumble because of how much it will cost them to maintain that beautiful house. My friends, that is what we do when we talk about how expensive children are. Or we grumble about how much they are setting us back. That should never happen. Instead, we should rejoice and celebrate that God would entrust such a precious inheritance to us. Children are valuable because they have been given to us by God. But the psalm also adds that they are valuable because of what they give back to their parents. Verses four and five say, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. I love this picture of what parenting is all about. Parenting is about taking little sticks and turning them into arrows. It may not seem so when you're changing your 10th diaper for the day or when you're like me the other day I was giving our one-year-old a bath. 
I briefly checked the Blue Jay score on my phone, and there he is splashing the water with something in his hand. What is it? It's a big piece of poop. <laughs> Happy as can be. A little stick that will one day turn into an arrow. Now, what are these arrows for? Verse 5 says, He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The gate was the place in the city where accusations and disputes were heard by the elders of the city. It was the local courtroom of the time. It was where adjudication and justice was dispensed. Verse 5 is saying that if an enemy were to bring charges against a man, he could send his sons and daughters like arrows in the hand of a warrior, and they would address the charges and take away their father's shame. What a blessing! What a privilege, what a reward. Happy is the parent who has children who can be sent out like arrows. But if we're going to get there, we need to shape them and we need to sharpen them so that they would defend their parents and ultimately so that they would defend their God. I mean, verse 2, the imagery of the watchmen on the walls. That's the the other kind of military metaphor here. They're, They're watching over the city the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, they're watching it and these arrows are defending that precious city. There is no greater joy as, uh, for parents than seeing your children honor you as their parents and honor the Lord as their God. And if you have children like that, you are blessed. And the more that you have, the more arrows that are in your quiver, the more blessed you will be. Writing of this joy, Charles Spurgeon wrote this, to this end we must have our children in hand while they are yet children, or they are never likely to be so when they are grown up. And we must try to point them and straighten them so as to make arrows of them in their youth, lest they should prove crooked and unserviceable in afterlife. Let the Lord favor us with loyal, obedient, affectionate offspring." and we will find in them our best helpers. We shall see them shot forth into life to our comfort and delight if we take care from the very beginning that they are directed to the right point. That is what we are called to do as parents, my friends. That is the joy and the privilege of raising up little people who are entrusted to us by God and given to us as a reward and as an inheritance. We are called to shape and to sharpen arrows for the Lord. And when we do that, we know that God has done the same with his son. As much as these verses are instructive for us as parents and instructive for us as we seek to build a house, they are ultimately about another son, a son of David, the culmination of the house that Solomon prayed that the Lord would build. Jesus is all the things described in these verses. Jesus is our inheritance from the Lord. Jesus is the blessed fruit of the womb. Jesus is the heavenly arrow sent forth from heaven into our world to take away our shame. Jesus came into the world and died on the cross So that when our enemy, the devil, accuses us in the courtroom of our conscience, when he accuses us of breaking God's commands and rebelling against his will, we can say, 
What you say is true and even more. But Christ has taken all my sin and Christ has taken all my shame. There is now no condemnation for me because the heavenly arrow has been sent and he has paid the price for my sins. My friends, Jesus is the arrow from heaven. He is the inheritance from the Lord and he is the blessed fruit of the womb. He is the child who was given. He was the son who was born to be the savior of the world so that all, all who find refuge in him could be saved and could be set free from their shame. If you've never put your trust in Christ before, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you have never looked to Christ as the one who would take away your sin and your shame, then God calls you today to look to him to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive the gift of eternal life. And for the parents among us, God wants you to know this. You are blessed. You are blessed. You may not always feel that way in the day-to-day toil, in your experience or constant experience of anxious parenting, but you are blessed you are sitting beside his reward for you. You're you're going to be picking up his inheritance out of the Sunday school class in just a few moments. And he has given all of that to you so that you would experience the special blessing of shaping and sharpening them into arrows for the Lord. And the more you trust him, the more you look to him to build the house alongside you, the more you will experience this blessing. My friends, the church should be full of the happiest parents in the world. It should be full of parents who delight in their children because they, amongst all other people, know what children are. An inheritance from the Lord. And they delight in their children because we worship a God who delights in his children. The happier we are as parents the more we show the world what our God truly is like and reveal his deep, fatherly, affectionate heart for his people. So in closing, let me leave you with a few questions for personal application. And I encourage you to consider these with your spouse, if you're married, to consider how you would answer these questions and to consider how they might change some of the ways that you function as a father and a mother in the day-to-day task and privilege of parenting your children. Three categories of questions. First, how can you show your children that you delight in them as God's gift to you? How can you show them that you delight in them as God's gift to you? Do they know that you delight in them when you come home from work? or when you greet them in the morning? Do you you show that you delight in them by marking special occasions, special milestones to celebrate what God has done in their life? Can we show our children that we truly do believe Psalm 127, that children are an inheritance from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward? Second category of questions. Do you give thanks to God for your children? Do you give thanks to God for your children, reminding yourself that children are a heritage from the Lord? Do you you consider yourself blessed because of the children God has given you? Do you 
pray for them regularly, knowing that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Last category. How is God calling you to shape and sharpen these arrows that he has put into your quiver? Are you attentive to their individual needs and to their individual stage of life? Are you regularly talking with your spouse about how to be a wise and godly parent to that particular child? When you look at your weekly schedule, how you're spending your time, how you're interacting with your kids, what does it say about what you want most for your kids? Does it reveal that what you want most for your kids is that they obtain life skills so they could have successful careers? Or does it reveal that what you want most for them is that they would love Jesus, that they would delight in his word, and that they would show his glory to others? These are important questions to ask and to talk about with your spouse. Because if we do not parent according to God's pattern in scripture, we are building without him. We are building in vain. But if we build with the blessing of God, then despite our weakness, Despite our failures, despite our shortcomings, nothing will stop him from building a house that will last for generations. Let's pray. Father, how we desire, long for, cry out for godly families. You showed us the potential of families when you chose Abraham. And you blessed him. And you said through that blessing, he would be a blessing to all the nations. I pray that this church would be full of families like Abraham's family that would be blessed to be a blessing. And we pray that you would equip us with the skills, the wisdom, and the godliness to parent according to your will. And we pray that as we build you would build alongside us so that out of this church, out of these families would come houses of faithful followers of Jesus who live for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.